0: They were called magic slate boards. Are you old enough to remember them? They were the greatest. They were the greatest because they were so forgiving. Had a black slate piece of cardboard at the bottom. On top of it, there was a gray piece of acetate. On top of the gray piece of acetate, there was a clear piece of plastic. And then you had a stylus. And uh, when you put that stylus against the slate, it would make a mark on the gray sheet underneath the clear piece of plastic on the top. And you could draw pictures. They were so forgiving. Uh, What I loved about them, and I think it was why they were one of my favorites, is because uh, there was an immediate do-over if it didn't go down well. You could just pull up the sheet, you'd hear a little, and it would take all the markings off the gray piece of paper, and you could start over with a clean slate, it was called. Did you have a magic slate board? I know you want one now, I know it. I think there's retro companies out there that still make them. I loved them. My family had... uh, religious discipline to uh, going to three services a week at the country church where I grew up, 25 minutes away from our house, uh, do the math, that's almost uh, three hours in the car uh, a week on that. And so invariably, my mother tried to uh, get my sisters and I involved in some activity other than fighting with each other in the back seat on the way to and from church and one of her tricks was she'd put these magic slates in the back seat. You know, we'd, we'd take off drawing. But um, we were ever given to banter uh, with each other. Uh, some of it was designed to be humorous. Others of it was designed to be malicious intentionally. We just uh, Especially the honoree guy in the back seat You know, between my two sisters. But what I loved about this is uh, sometimes we'd, we'd get to commenting on each other's picture. And I'd start into some, you know, work that should be put in the Louvre and hung next to the Mona Lisa. And my two sisters would talk to me about how lame my picture was. And at first I was real bold, but then I would begin to be, I'd fall under the spell of their persuasion and have to confess myself, you know, they're right. This picture's lame. This looks terrible. But it was okay because I just picked up the bottom of the sheet and I was brand new. It was a Fantastic redo. If you're old enough to remember those slate boards, or in your mind's eye can conceive of this, you'll know how wonderful they were. Uh, Because as we got older, we realized, wow, wouldn't it be great to have a slate board for life, for redos, for mulligans, to pull the page up. And start over. If you want to understand what Christmas means at its heart, that's what it means. It was a profound reset by the grace of God offered to humanity when God began to make all things new by sending his son and bringing a new era. Behold the meaning of Christmas. Come with me to Romans chapter 5, and we'll rehearse this this morning. Jay read Matthew 4. The first Adam faced the enemy of our soul and failed miserably. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, faced the enemy and was victorious. That's the temptation account. The old English poet, John Milton, and it's really hard to read. uh, He wrote Paradise Lost about the first Adam. And then later he wrote Paradise Regained. And I thought, oh, I'm going to read that. So I grabbed a hold of it and started going through it. And I was shocked at where Milton ends in the story of the second Adam, Jesus. The book ends at the temptation account. Wait a minute. Why does he end it there? But his point was that the first Adam fell away from God in temptation. The second Adam was faithful to Christ and faithful to God and started a whole new race. And so for him... It was game over after the temptation. Paradise now could be restored. Let's place Christmas and the coming of Jesus right in the middle of God's big story. It's the big story of the Bible. Really, the big story that God has to tell humanity has two acts. Act 1. The first Adam, who's famous for falling away from God and plunging humanity into what we have today. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came. This whole redemption event started in Bethlehem. And through the second Adam, now paradise is accessible through knowing God in Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas is important, because a powerful redo was made possible in Christ. Come with me to Romans chapter 5. We'll look at three verses that you may not have considered before now to be great Christmas verses. They are before us. Let's place Christmas and the coming of Christ in the middle of God's big story of redemption. Here we contrast the legacy of Adam with the legacy of Christ. The first Adam, the head of the human race. The second Adam who starts God's new society, as John Stott called it, who starts the redeemed people of God. Romans 5, 15-17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's go in two different directions. First, human history got off to a horrible start with the first Adam. That's what verse 15 is talking about. Our father Adam was not long in paradise before we were on the outside looking in, banished from paradise. Now, there's an important cause-effect involved when we look at Adam. Let's look at the cause and then the effect. The first Adam trespassed against God. That's verse 15. This says fundamentally that man has a problem. We are Adam's children. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Adam started us down a slippery slope. It is the ultimate domino effect. Uh, You've had some, you've known some friends probably with me who have uh, had cardiac issues. And yet, simultaneous with their cardiac issues, was a very careful diet, scrupulously keeping it, and a regimen of exercise that was outstanding. And yet, they get on in life and run into some cardiac problem, and people shake their head. And the cardiologist would sit him down, put his arm around him, and say, Look, you can do what you can, but you cannot outrun your genes. And your genetics have disposed you to issues of the heart. Well, our spiritual genetics are tied inexorably to our father, Adam. And Adam fell, and it was a domino effect. We were all there, as it were, present in Adam, and he influences us. By nature, we inherit Adam's heart, and we find indulgence. Sin, selfishness, natural. It's like a natural reflex in our approach to life. Seemingly right. It's the common lot of all of humanity, not just some of us, but all of us. Adam got us off to a bad start, or the Apostle Paul would say it like this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three. Now, that's the cause. Now, what about the effect then? Adam's sin plunged the human race into condemnation and death. It was of some consequence that Adam took a hike in rebellion out of the garden, believing all along that his way was better than God's way. By the way, how's that working out for us? The effects of Adam's sin are contrasted in verse 16 with the effects of Christ's obedience. The trespass brought death. And this is what was promised in the call to obedience when God, the maker of heaven and earth, spoke to Adam. Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but this tree. And if you partake of this tree... You will die. Of course, Satan, in that original discussion, smuggles in that serpent of old, smuggles into Adam's mind the oldest lie in the book, the book. There is no consequence for sin. (laughs) You will not surely die. And the only thing he did was start a process of death That ensues unto today for Adam's children in our lot. Remember, the Apostle Paul further characterized it. The wages of sin is death. What we get paid for following these natural inclinations that inevitably come as Adam's children is death, separation, separation from God. Death came by sin. It's the inevitable result of the curse. By the way, Christianity, one of its glories is it has an explanation for reality and why things are the way things are. Why do people die? Christianity has an answer. People die. It wasn't like this in the beginning. We brought this on by our sinful rebellion against God. The natural consequence of sin was death, separation from God. We didn't want his ways. We walked away to our own and walked into a ditch of death. There's no one who walks into a funeral home without having or goes to a funeral without having a sense of this ought not be. This isn't right. This seems odd. This seems not normal because you and I were created to live. And so whenever we are exposed to death, it's a rude shock to us. This ought not be. We have that sense from the inside, that sense of profound loss because we weren't built for death. We were built for life. But sin entered and death has come and Christianity has an explanation. By the way, what is the secular, godless explanation for death? Well, we just... You know, you just die. We just get old and die. What do you expect? Well, how comes everything about us yearns for life? That's not an explanation. You don't have an explanation for death, do you? No, just people die. That's that's what happens. Now, the Puritans, got to give it to the Puritans. Way before the McGuffey Reader, they were teaching their children the alphabet. And they decided they were going to teach their children the alphabet and teach them theology while they taught them the alphabet. And, boy, they went right for the jugular at the first letter. And so they had a little jingle for each letter of the alphabet. A, here's our jingle for A. A is for Adam. In Adam all die. <laughs> right? Right Shoot! <laughs> you get the first letter. A is for Adam. Okay. What about Adam should I remember? In Adam all die. And they began to teach them the tragedy of sin that had come and brought death. And you say, wow, that's, that's, that's really something. I remember I was a bellman at a hotel in Dallas when I was at Dallas Seminary. I worked there for over a year. And uh, I wasn't married, so I beat it all week. And then Friday nights, 3 to 11, and Saturday night, 3 to 11, I worked at the hotel. It was primarily a business hotel. There were some flat shifts, some Saturday nights, and And it was in the early 80s. It was right after the Iranian uh, hostage crises at the end of the Clinton or uh, Carter era as president. And um, I was working with a bunch of people from the Middle East. It's fascinating. And I remember uh, one friend, his name was Hussein, and how they were treated, you know, uh, our boss. He said, Hussein, that's not your name. Your name's Joe. When you come here, your name's Joe. So he put on his name tag, Joe. You know, he said, take Joe. Nobody can say Hussein, you know, and such a high insult to him. And and I remember there's a guy from Lebanon. Poor Lebanon is just right in the middle of all these groups and pulled in a million different directions. And their government collapses about every six months. And it's just a terrible tragedy. And the Lebanese are such wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. And I was working with this guy. His name is Malki. And Melky and I, one one evening shift, we began to talk about Jesus. And we began to talk about eternal life. And Melky had the darndest time trying to figure out if he had a need for Jesus. He just couldn't see it. And so I was talking to him about how our forefather Adam had sinned. And in his sin, he brought the consequence of the curse, which brought death. And that sin, by a holy God, had to be judged. And therefore, we were damned because we were Adam's children. And I was trying to get him to understand the bad news of the Bible before he could ever appreciate the good news about Jesus. And he got angry. He got really angry with me. He pushed back in conversation. And in an animated way, finally, he stood up in the conversation, and he said, and we were talking about sin, which brings God's judgment, in which we are damned, and he stood up, and he says, hey, I don't give a damn what Adam did. Who cares? And for him, he wanted to end the conversation there. I loved him so much, I didn't, I didn't, and, and I'm not a hero of love, but you know, I, I was just interested in his soul so... We kept going a little bit in the conversation. Because if you stop at the damnation, you're stopping at the wrong place. But if you're getting the damnation, you're right at the place where you see the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Adam's sin plunged the human race into condemnation and death. Now, at this point in the message, you might be saying, good night, man. are you kidding me? It's the day after Christmas. You know, Jay had it right. He starts with joy to the world. We're supposed to have joy and peace and coming of Jesus. You're up there haranguing about damnation and sin and Adam. You idiot, it's the day after Christmas. What's wrong with you? I want to face that with you because here's the point. You don't understand the glory of the manger. Until you understand what a horrible predicament we are in, in Adam as his children. Because our sin has brought the just condemnation of a God who's holy. So now, we're ready for act two. Act one went down bad. Act two went off extraordinarily Jesus' birth brought the possibility of hope to Adam's broken humanity. Hope born in a crisis, the crisis of Adam's children in where our sin has left us without hope, without God, simply anticipating death, the just consequence for our sin. Then came Jesus. Then came Christmas. And Christmas gave the human race hope. For life. Yet in these dark streets shineth the everlasting life. Yet yeah, hope was born in a crisis, in the crisis of the predicament of Adam's children, dead in our trespasses and sins, not alive or responsive to God in any way. But then God sent Jesus and changed. Let's note two facets of the good news about Jesus coming. Jesus coming, representing a powerful recreation for all of humanity who would receive him. First, God started over with Christmas, the second Adam's birth. I heard a farmer interviewed in western Kentucky. I think his farm was just north of Mayfield. And it showed an aerial shot of his lane that was lined with big old trees And the barn and the house, the trees were mangled up from the road to where the house was and where the barn was, and it was abject devastation. And the interviewer asked the man about his farm, and he rehearsed the history. He asked him where he was that night. This is an aside, but it's interesting. Oh, the mysteries of the ways of God. They said, look, if you were in your house, you'd have been wiped out. Were you in the house? Because nothing was left of the house. Remnants of the foundation were all that was left. So where where were you? He said, and he he wept as he said it. God told my wife and I to go to our church. We went and we were inside our church when this happened. If we were to interview him in 2025, and the Lord Jesus tarries his coming, here's what would happen. They would have a drone shot of those mangled trees which had gotten a little bit of green back and were beginning to grow, the ones that weren't uprooted and killed. And then it was a drone shot of, what? there's where the house used to be, but now there's a brand new house constructed there. That's where the barn used to be, and now there's a brand new barn constructed there what's going on for that farm to recover is nothing short of a powerful redo that's going to change the whole landscape if you want to understand why christmas is important and what exactly went on it's that for humanity that's what paul's getting at in romans 5 16 15 16 and 17 it's humanity's redo It's going to be a lot better. According to 515 and 517, did you notice twice he uses the phrase much more? Much more? Why, the new redo is much more than the first iteration. Grace takes us places where we could never go. I love the phrase in verse 17. Did you notice it? For if Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, I love that, will those who receive, here it is, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through this one man, Jesus Christ. Eric, what do we get in Christmas? What's the big deal? Right here represents the abundance of grace. Two stories from seminary of all things this morning. When when I... Andy and I were, I was in seminary, and we were first married. Uh, Sam Walton was coming up with the idea of let's sell food in bulk and open up food warehouses. So Sam's Club start. uh, And then costco you know, was taking off. And uh, so people were going to these places, and and, and we we had not been, and friends of ours went there. Now... uh, by the way, I made some enemies in the first service by this illustration. I'm sorry, but I will try to find out the best gastroenterologist I can find and send you to him. But uh, if you eat Lucky Charms, you are headed for GI demise. But anyway, my friend loved Lucky Charms. He just he, he loved to get out of bed and eat a bowl of Lucky Charms. Why you would eat that, I have no idea. But he was just fascinated with that. I know I made a few enemies, but I just got a fist bump, you know, like this. I'm sorry. First time he goes to Sam's Club, he's walking down an aisle, and his wife just laughed at the pathetic nature. He goes, Dane, get over here. <laughs> Look at this. She said, what? And, you know, she thought he had stumbled onto a gold mine. Look at this. I can't believe this. And there it was. You know, a plastic clear bag. The size of a 55-gallon drum, chuck full of Lucky Charms. Look at that theory! Can you could feed the 82nd Airborne with that bag of Lucky Charms. Well, the least you could say for that bag was there was an abundance of Lucky Charms. Now, who cares about Lucky Charms? You can do without that. In fact, you probably do better without that. When the Bible starts unpacking Christmas, this is what it says about the package and what's involved. John 1, 16. For from his fullness, we have all received, here it is, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. I don't know about you. I stand at the front of the line of a person who needs grace upon grace. And the very thing that I need and the very thing that you need is the very thing that God brought in Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. Or what Paul would say here, abundances of grace. Where sin did abound. That's me. Grace did much more abound and swallow up our sin in Christ. What a Savior. What a glory. What a package. What a gift. Do we get the abundance, the abundances of Christmas and Jesus' birth? What Sarah Edwards, the colonial preacher's wife, would call infinite upon infinite upon infinite in his grace. Do you need abundances of grace this morning? I do, and they're available in Jesus Christ. I love that about Him. Christmas is not a bonus for the years or your lifetime of performance. You know, you haven't been naughty, you have been nice, and therefore you get something at Christmas. Christmas is for the damned. Christmas is for the guilty. And it's not just a little package. It's abundances of grace. That's what it means. Now, Christmas brings, secondly then, the free gifts of grace and life to whoever will believe. If you want to understand what an author from the Bible is trying to emphasize, look at the words that the author uses. Five times in three verses, he repeats this. Free gift. Verse 15. First, free gift. Used again in verse 15. Free gift. Verse 16, free gift. Verse 16, free gift. Verse 17, I'm getting the impression that when it comes to Jesus, right at the core of the idea of Jesus is this notion of a, here it is, free gift. Not earned or deserved. Christmas is about a free gift, gift giving. Now, who in the room does not understand how to receive a gift? Someone has said faith is the hands of our heart reaching out to receive the gift of God, the free gift of God. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit in creation Adam was given life in sin he brought death to us in our penchant for sinning in the coming of Jesus God brought the possibility of life through abundant grace for Adam's children now I grew up in a country church and we had a, the children had a Christmas program every year, and we would all memorize a little poem. They were called pieces. Did you memorize your piece yet, Eric? Oh, I'm working on it. Working on. It. You gotta have your piece down. And so, in order, we'd go up to the microphone, say our piece, and we sang the same songs. And my mom and I'm almost ready to forgive her. Would dress me up in leader tarts and a little. Uh, drum and I'd come out and sing come they told me and everybody would go oh, isn't that cute it took me years to recover from the trauma of the drummer boy I'm almost over it oh thank God for a mother and father who loved their children and taught them the gospel and pointed them to Jesus and hope and that abundant grace I'll die grateful but along the way the kids uh uh, you know, the overachievers, the draft picks, they got to hold one of the letters. Yeah, somebody got poster board several years ago, you know, and cut out C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S, and then put aluminum foil around it. And We put it in the same box and stowed it away in the same place. It smelled musty with the, the you know, the, the water in the church basement every year. But we, we took them out anyway. And invariably one of them would need repair and somebody would go buy some fresh aluminum foil and put it around the letter and we'd be all set. Then the draft would go out and who we going to pick this year. The draft, you know, and you, so you got to hold a letter and as all the choir was singing in the ultimate song, C is for the Christ child. You get to st- stand up and hold your letter up and uh, then we'd explain christmas h and r and i s t m a s and that's why there's a christmas day we were all holding up our letters so proud and that was quite a routine we were explaining christmas god explained christmas with his word which became incarnate in jesus in flesh It was a word full of abundant grace to Adam's children and with this word he starts a whole new human race. I mean the whole race, the whole pad of the whole race was and started over in Jesus Christ and invites everyone who will come and place their faith in Christ to be a part of a new humanity redeemed away from sin. And unto our Lord. So the great question at Christmas is this. Have you received the gift of this abundant grace? Have you received this gift? Do you know how to receive this gift? It's easy. If I had a gift this morning wrapped up, should have wrapped one up. Been a great illustration. Walk it back and I'd hand it to Eric Swinford. It wouldn't be like Eric is all flummoxed and saying, I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do. We all get gift giving and receiving. That's Christmas. God is the giver offering us the gift of righteousness, the gift of a right standing before him, the gift of a healed relationship, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of abundant grace. And Christmas is God wrapping this up in a bow in the person of his son and offering it to us. If you're here this morning, if you're online this morning, and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I urge you to receive the gift. And the arms of faith, reach up and receive this extraordinary gift that changes our life and changes our eternity We are damned apart from Christ. We are blessed in Christ with a righteous standing and a future hope and a forgiven heart. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, why not this morning? Why not right now, bowing the head of your heart and saying, God, I'm one of Adam's children. And my relationship with you is broken by my sin. And I see now the meaning of Christmas. You sent Jesus so that I could have life. You sent Jesus to die so that I could be forgiven. You raised Jesus so I could have hope. I want Jesus into my life. And I acknowledge my sin and my lostness. And this morning I receive the gift of eternal life. If you prayed that prayer, I I want to talk to you this week. Calvary wants to cheer you on and move you forward. One does not earn this gift. It's not that we are deserving. It's what makes Christmas all the more glorious. It's in spite of our undeservingness that He's come. For six years, Andy and I lived in a parsonage, and we were serving in Lansing, Michigan. They were great years. Our children were really small. Abby was born there. Our two boys were really young when we moved there. And the church was doing everything to accommodate us. And... um, If anything broke in the parsonage, they were all over it. And they had a guy who was omni-competent. He was an older man. He was old school. He was a cross between a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, a genius, and a creator of any tool that you needed just in the garage to use. And, you know, you could give him a hanger, he could close a garage and drive a Lamborghini out, you know, in a couple of days. You know, it was just amazing. And it was interesting. We were not conscious of what our boys, and Ben was really small, and he's the one who said it, were observing about what was going on. Problem at the house, call Mr. Keebler, Mr. Keebler fixes it. Something gone wrong, call Mr. Keebler, Mr. Keebler repairs it. Well, Ben had a favorite toy one day he busted his favorite toy. and He was quite forlorn. And he was upset. But it dawned on him that maybe there was hope in the midst of his brokenness. He walked down the hallway, had one piece of the toy in one hand, had one piece of the toy in the other hand. And he announced to Andy, Mom, Mr. Keebler can fix this. Because he thought if he, you know, does the water heater and takes care of the plumbing and the electrical, garage door opener, if he does all that stuff, he, he can handle this. Now, when it came time to repair the brokenness of humanity, it wasn't a repair job of fixing what was broken so it would work. It was a complete redo and start over in a whole new race of redeemed people in Jesus Christ. And it got started at Christmas. And its work is ongoing unto today. And that abundant grace and that free gift will change a man's heart, will change a woman's heart, will change a little girl's heart, will change a little boy's heart. And having a future and a hope, we will come into the glory of realizing the very reason we were created, to know our God and make our boast in living for him. Aren't you with me so glad God conceived of Christmas? That's what it means. Father, into our crisis of being estranged from you, Hope was born in Jesus. Thank you. We say with Paul, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. All the glories of your abundant grace. How sweet and joyful to celebrate that together this morning. Work in our lives. pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.